All right, Acts chapter 2, our lesson is entitled, Early Church Growth. Early Church Growth, and boy does it grow. <laughs> One sermon and 3,000 people, that's pretty good growth, isn't it? This is lesson number 7. Now, seven's a good number, isn't it? All right, we're going to be looking at Acts 2, verses 37 to 41 today. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, all right? Father, how great it is to know you through your holy word and through the life of your son, the Lord Jesus, who was the fullness of the Godhead bodily, from whom and by whom we do learn of you. He revealed you to us. And thank you for the Holy Spirit and the age in which we live where he actually indwells and empowers those of us who have placed our faith in Christ. And we thank you for the fullness of scripture that we have all 66 books of scripture and the privilege it is for us to even in this country have our own personal copy of the Bible. We thank you, Father, for the, the blessing of freedom to worship without fear of persecution. We thank you for all kinds of resources to help us in our study of your word. And we thank you for the other members of your spiritual body, the church, who we enjoy such great fellowship with and who use their gifts so that we function in unity to bring you glory by edifying one another and, and bringing the lost to your son. We are so without excuse, excuse if we fail to know you as we should, living in our generation and in this country. I pray, Father, that every one of us would desire to know you deeper every single day and to know the power of your resurrection in our lives, as well as, I know it's always dangerous to pray this, but to also know the fellowship of your sufferings. Yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. May we know what that persecution feels like, and sometimes the worst persecution comes from members of our own family who do not know you and your righteousness. I do thank you, Father, for that Marvelous day that you heard my cry of desperation and brought me up out of the miry clay of this sinful, God-dishonoring pit and set my feet upon a rock named Jesus Christ and established my goings and put a new song in my heart, even praise unto you. Thank you that I know why I'm here. I have purpose and joy and peace that passes all understanding even in the midst of adversity, and that I know without a shadow of a doubt where I am going one day when I leave this earth. And Father, I pray that everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about. And if not, together we pray that no eternal soul leaves here today without making absolute sure that she has been born again by your Spirit and is indeed a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now we ask that there would be spiritual fruit from this lesson as your Holy Spirit does his convicting, convincing work as well as his edifying and exhorting work and above all, his exaltation of Christ work. I pray that corporately both our words and thoughts would bring pleasure to you as we allow your two-edged sword to do its work in and through us. Well, we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me begin with a review of the sermon. 
And for that, I'm going to read Peter's words of verses 14 to 36. If you'll look with me at Acts 2, starting at verse 14. This is right after some in the crowd asked, What meaneth this? When the Spirit was poured out and, and the 120 believers in the upper room began to speak in known languages and dialects, some said, What does this mean? And others mocked, saying, These people are full of new wine. In other words, they're, they're drunk. And Peter stands up, verse 14, with the eleven, lifts up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, only nine in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass. Now these are the words of Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God... Actually, they're the words of God, aren't they? They're the words of God through Joel, now through Peter and the Spirit. <laughs> I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I, shall, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great notable day of the Lord come. What day is that? The second coming. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amazing. That was spoken way back in Old Testament times. Whosoever. Who does that include? Everybody. Gentiles too. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. I love that verse. Four, now here he quotes from Psalm 16, for David speaketh concerning him, concerning Christ. Now these are the Lord Jesus' words spoken through David. I foresaw saw the Lord always before my face. That's Jesus speaking of his Father. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. But when he was on earth, he said the Lord his Father was always on his right hand. What does that speak of? He was his source of power during his life. So that's what he's saying here, that I should not be moved because you were always on my right hand. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh, this is Christ speaking, shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades. Really should be Hades. Not the lake of fire, but Hades. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. All right, now we go back to Peter speaking. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. In other words, David knew that the Messiah was to come from his own seed. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Who is he speaking of? All 120. We are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. This is his doing. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens. This is um, a quote now from Psalm 110.1. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make, make thy foes thy footstool. <clears throat> Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that was what we covered last week. <clears throat> In the previous lesson last week, we had taken a look at the very first sermon ever preached in what is called the church age. Since that time, millions and millions and millions of sermons have been preached. <clears throat> it was preached by a completely restored Peter, who now yielded a new sword, the two-edged sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon, not offensive in that it's an offense, but it's offense, you know, not defense. The only offensive weapon of the church age, warrior. It was the fully come day of Pentecost. It was the fulfillment of all that God planned for Pentecost to be when he first gave his prophetic, messianic, redemptive calendar to his people in what chapter of the Bible? Leviticus? Come on, you haven't forgotten that, have you? Leviticus 23, God's prophetic calendar. It was the day as God had proclaimed through his prophet Joel that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. That's Joel 2.28. And Peter repeats it in verse 17 here. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether male or female, whether free or slave, his spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And of course, that, those have to be saved people, people who know and acknowledge Jesus Christ. He will pour out his spirit. He won't be... a discriminating and when the spirit came just as the father had promised would occur after his son was glorified once the the son was glorified he couldn't send the spirit until he was ascended right remember he said that in john 7 39 then when he was ascended seated at his father's right hand he sent forth the spirit and the 120 believers gathered together in that upper room on pentecost were indeed baptized by christ he was the baptizer, and they were baptized with the Spirit into that mystical, spiritual body that Old Testament saints knew absolutely nothing about. And what is it called? The church. The Old Testament believers knew nothing about the church. Well, at the moment of their spirit baptism, these believers, which included the 12 apostles, were also indwelled with the Spirit. And they were filled with the Spirit. And if you don't understand all the different ministries of the Holy Spirit, we talked about that several weeks ago. So get the tape or get maybe you got the lesson already on email. 
the immediate spiritual gift that came upon all of them was what? It was the gift that Joel had predicted, right? It was the gift of prophesy, which is used in the general sense of that word. Not that they were predicting the future, but that they were proclaiming or speaking forth the wonderful works of God, which of course culminated in Christ, his son. So henceforth, from that time forward, from the day of Pentecost forward, every believer, every saved person is to proclaim the wonderful works of God. It would begin, that proclamation would begin with just Jewish people, but soon the Gentiles would join with them as the gospel fire spread from Jerusalem to where? The uttermost part of the world. Every member of Christ's church is called to be his witness. And at salvation, every believer is empowered to do so. We are all empowered to be his witnesses. We may not know much doctrinally when we're first saved. That is a growing thing, isn't it? Isn't that why we're here this morning? It's an ongoing growing thing that we do all of our lives because we can never learn it all. But we can certainly speak forth the testimony of the wonderful works that God has done through Christ in us and through us. We can give our own personal testimony even as a baby Christian. That's what I did as soon as I was saved. I went and told my parents and my brother and my sister what Christ had just done for me. The fact that the 120 people came out of the upper room empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God and spoke to the Pentecost multitudes about the Lord Jesus is really not that unusual to us. Because as I said, that was the first thing I did. Is it the first thing you did if you were saved a little bit later in life, maybe not as a child? Maybe it is the first thing you did as a child when you were saved. You wanted to tell somebody about it. This is what's been going on for the past 2,000 years. So it's not that strange for us to think once they were empowered by the Holy Spirit that they wanted to speak about Jesus. Saved people have been talking about Jesus ever since. What was unusual about Pentecost? What was unusual is that these Jewish people, and all 120 were Jewish, they were sharing with the gathered crowd in all kinds of Gentile languages. They were speaking in Gentile languages and dialects, languages that they had never known before. And the devout Jews, verse 5 tells us they were devout Jews, who had come forth from all over the diaspora, where all the Jewish people had been scattered since the Babylonian captivity, these devout Jews were utterly amazed, it told us. And they marveled how common Galilean people were able to speak in the Gentile languages of the lands that they had made their homes. So they asked, what meaneth this? What's the meaning of all this? And that question and the Spirit's leading prompted Peter to stand up with the eleven, lift and lift up his voice to answer. And the result was his very first sermon, which was miraculously uninterrupted. It is pretty amazing that it wasn't interrupted, that nobody tried to shout him down, especially when he got to the point where he said, Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter began his message with a quick jab of his new sword at the derision of the devil's advocates. As is always the case, whenever and wherever God is doing a mighty work 
in the world, there is always going to be, you can count on it, the presence of mockers, those who will mock and be derisive. Because these people, whoever these mockers were, and they probably included the religious rulers, they did not have willful ears to hear what the Spirit was saying through the lips of the newborn members of Christ's church because they didn't have willful ears. I can't talk. They accused them of being full of new wine. In other words, they accused them of being inebriated, drunk. Now, Peter, we mentioned this wisely, did not waste time trying to appeal to the goats and to their goading. Did you like that? <laughs> to get him, they were trying to goad him into um, being on the defense instead of on the offense. Now, last time, he didn't prove to be too good at being on the defense with the sword. It only cost one man one ear, and even that was replaced. So, you know, he, he's learned his lesson. He's not going to be put on the defense. And people will try to do that. If you're witnessing to them, they'll try to put you on the defense instead of the offense, so beware. In effect, Peter simply scorned their scorn by saying, of course, ten dozen of us are not drunk. Plus, they had a thing on feast days that you didn't eat or drink until the services were over with in the temple. And the services were still going on in the temple at nine o'clock in the morning. So he scorned, I mean, everybody would know, of course, they're not drunk, so having dealt sufficiently, and that's all it took, you know, just one edge of the two-edged sword, he was done with them, dealt sufficiently with the derisive crowd, he now turns his attention to the devout crowd. He's going to spend his time with the sheep, not with the goats. He goes on the offense, and he begins with his explanation from Joel chapter 2 that this that they had seen and heard and had just asked about was the outpouring of God's Spirit promised to occur in the last days. You talked about that in your groups, didn't you? The last days. Are we living in the last days? Yes, we are. They've gone on for 2,000 years. <laughs> Knowing full well that what Peter quoted from Joel matched perfectly with what they had just witnessed, no one could argue with him. Also, because these devout Jews would know that the reference to the last days spoke of messianic times, they would have been ready to question Peter. They would have understood. Devout Jews knew their Old Testaments. So hearing this, they'd be ready to question him. Okay, if you're saying by quoting Joel that the last days have already begun, then logically it only could mean that the Messiah had already come. But before anyone could formulate that question, Peter beats them to the punch by telling them in the main body of his sermon that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah. He had publicly, in the midst of you, proven his messianic credentials. How? By his miracles and his signs and his wonders. Yes, he had been taken by wicked hands and crucified, but... It was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was all in God's sovereign plan from the horizon of time. Remember what the word in Greek is for determinate? Horizo. That's where we get our word horizon. 
This was all God's plan from the beginning, from the horizon of time, so that sinful man could be redeemed by the sinless blood of a kinsman redeemer, the perfect blood of the Passover lamb, the once-for-all Passover lamb. Well, after speaking of Christ's death, then Peter went on to speak of Christ's resurrection. It's a very organized sermon. He talks about the Lord's life, you know, his marvelous works and how that proved he was Messiah. Then he talked about his death. Then he goes on to speak about his resurrection, and he ends up talking about his ascension. Very, very organized sermon. So he goes on, speaks about his um, resurrection. He says in verse 24, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. What is death? Death is the wages of sin, correct? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Death is what resulted from man's disobedience to God, his rebellion against God. But Jesus had no sin. He always did those things that pleased his father. He would not, he would, yes, he would go into death for you and for me. He didn't go into death for himself. He went into death for us, but it could not hold him because he was sinless. And David, Peter says, had even written of this in Psalm 16. God's Holy One, they all knew that that was a title for the Messiah. God's Holy One would not suffer corruption. His flesh would rest in hope. Speaking of a bodily, not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily, his flesh could rest in hope when it was laid in that grave because it would not be in the grave long enough to corrupt, to decay. Peter was skillfully fencing with his sword. He was fencing his listeners into a corner with the logic of prophetic truth that had literally been fulfilled. He could not, David, Peter says, could not have been speaking of himself. When David wrote that psalm, he was not speaking of himself because anyone could just go over to David's tomb and find out that his body was still in the grave. If they wanted to dig it up, there would be his bones. They could see for themselves that he, David, had not resurrected bodily. Furthermore, it would have been blasphemous for King David to have ever referred to himself as God's holy one. Wouldn't it? That would be utter blasphemy. David knew, very well knew, that he was not holy. He knew. He said in Psalm 51.3, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He would not have called himself the Holy One of God. Well, Peter continued on the offense by then quoting from two more of David's psalms to pin his audience even further into a corner. This is all a sword fight, right? What's our weapon? The word. This is our sword. And he does so with irrefutable additional scriptural proof. In verse 30, he reminds them of the Davidic covenant that God made with David. Quoting from Psalm 132, verse 11, Peter says something else that these devout Jews would already know, which was that God had promised David that the Christ... The Messiah would come through his loins. In other words, the coming Messiah would be a descendant of David. And he would sit on David's throne for how long? 
he would sit on David's throne forever. Now, as just mentioned, David also said that God's Holy One would rise from the dead. His flesh would not see corruption, right? So he would resurrect. But how could he resurrect from the dead if he hadn't first died? That makes sense, right? You can't resurrect from the dead unless, first of all, you died. I mean, that's just basic logic. So he's saying that David understood that the Messiah, the one who would come through his lineage, the Messiah would die. He didn't say how, but he said he would die and that he would rise. So the true Messiah would come from the fruit of his body, would die, but his body would not corrupt in the grave. Um, And he'd have to rise from the dead if he was going to sit on David's throne forever. All of it makes perfect sense. That's why nobody interrupts him. They cannot refute what he's saying. You're always on good ground when you're quoting from Scripture. And then Peter adds in verse 32, and oh, by the way, verse 32, he says, oh, by the way, do you see all these 120 people who have been so miraculously speaking to you in your own native Gentile tongues and dialects even? Well, we are all witnesses that this Jesus hath God raised up. What is he saying there? Every single one of us saw him with our own eyes, resurrected from the dead. Now, let me tell you something. If any case in court showed up with 120 witnesses, all declaring, I mean, you could take them separately into the courtroom, not let them hear what everybody else is saying, take them separately. And every single one of them was a person of integrity, but there was great diversity in those witnesses, but every one of them testified, yes, I saw what I saw, and here's what I saw. This same Jesus that I knew before was raised from the dead. I saw him eat food in front of me, drink. I saw the nail prints in his his hands and, and feet, you know, on and on. Every one of them gave the identical testimony. If that happened today, the judge and the jury would be totally convinced, right? They'd have to be. Do you notice that nobody piped up in this audience um, to contradict the death of Jesus? This only had occurred 53 days earlier. Everyone there knew that Jesus had indeed died. You know, today people will say they come up with these swoon theories and all these crazy things. Oh, he didn't really die. None of these people said, well, we don't really think he died. They all knew he had died. Furthermore, the proclaimed resurrection of Jesus was also very well known. It had only been 50 days previous that it had occurred. And by now, everyone had heard the lie that was being propagated by the Jewish religious rulers that the disciples had stolen his body. But these devout... Always remember, these are devout Jews. They are the ones who took the time to walk. Maybe it took them two weeks or three weeks to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They had probably arrived for the Feast of Passover and stayed that time, you know, for the whole thing. But they took that time. So they're serious about their faith. They're serious about the Lord and the Scripture. Um, And these, these eyewitnesses of something very special that had just gone on with these people 
would understand that the that God would not pour out his spirit and give such a miracle that they could speak in these languages to grave robbers. Would he do that? Would God do that for just deceivers? People who deceived the rest of their people that said their their Messiah had risen from the grave. So they understood that this really, you know, these people are genuine in what they're saying. They had seen Jesus alive. And what they the audience here had just seen and heard was obviously a miracle of God, one that matched up perfectly with Joel's prophecy. When God would pour out his spirit, people would speak forth. So they knew everything was making sense. Also, there was nothing Peter was saying in explanation of that remarkable Pentecost event that they absolutely could argue with. Nothing. They could, they could argue with Simon, but they couldn't argue with Scripture. The resurrection, like the crucifixion, he says, was all part of the divine plan. It was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge, which really is the word, um, remember, prognosis in Greek, prognosis, which means it was the foreordination of God. He planned it from eternity past. So this is the force of the inspired prophecies of David. David had seen it. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years before Christ, David had seen the coming Messiah, his death and his resurrection. David had seen all that. And now they too, Peter says, you too must see it. The coming of the Spirit was the crowning proof of Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of power in heaven. Christ was the one who shed forth the Spirit. Peter, with his new sword in his hand, now goes in for the kill, all right? He saves the best for last. The final Old Testament verse that he used, that he presented, was one that he had heard straight from the master's lips. Do you remember, those of you who were with us on our Life of Christ study, this was years ago, but it was um, Passion Week Tuesday. Passion Week Tuesday was the busiest recorded day in Christ's life. It took, I think we were on Tuesday of the Passion Week for a year. Really. I'm, it was unbelievable. <laughs> um, but it was Tuesday. And the religious rulers, one sect after another. I think, first of all, the Herodians came with some Pharisees, and, and they asked him a question. They were all trying to trip him up. They were trying to get Jesus in, either in trouble with the Romans so that they would arrest him, by the asking a question, uh, is it, you know, should we, how do they word it? Um, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They're trying to trip him up so that the Romans, you know, he'd say, no, don't pay your taxes. And then another sect came along, and they were the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection, and they made up that story about a woman who had seven husbands and whose wife would she be in the resurrection. Ha, ha, what a silly thing to think that there would be a resurrection. And he stumped them, you know, with his answers. And then the third group came up, and they tried to get him in trouble with uh, the Jews, discredit him by getting him to contradict Moses by asking, what is the greatest commandment? And they thought he would say one of his own. But, you know, he's, he just, oh, he just, they, they, there was no way they could entangle him with his talk, which is what Matthew twenty two fifteen says they wanted to do, entangle him with his talk. They didn't know they were speaking to the word himself, right? There's no way. I get all entangled with my talk, but there's no way they could entangle him. 
So by the time he was through with all of these religious groups, he had cut them to the quick with his wisdom in answering them. And the result was that every single one of those groups of religious rulers either left the scene. I mean, this was public. There were a lot of people around listening. They either left that scene with their tails tucked between their legs, you know, in embarrassment, or they stood there in great smoldering anger and embarrassed silence before him. But instead of turning and walking away, what did Jesus do? He says, okay, you guys have had your turn. Now it's my turn. I have a question for you. And here's this question. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And immediately they answered, David. We all know that. He's David's son. And then he said back to them, in effect, okay. Then answer me this question. If David, writing under divine inspiration called the Messiah Lord, then how is he David's son? And then the Lord Jesus quoted from this verse of David, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's a very powerful verse. And Peter also uses this verse. Peter had been there that day. He heard the master use this sword, and now he uses it to conclude the first sermon of church history. That verse is Psalm 110.1. It says, the Lord said unto my Lord. David is speaking. Okay, the Lord, Jehovah, is that word, Lord, said unto my David's Adonai. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. In that verse, David declared the deity of his own descendant son, the promised Messiah. No Jewish man would ever call his son or his grandson or his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson Adonai. Adonai was a title for God. But David did. He called his own descendant Lord. Why did David do that? Well, because he was not only divinely inspired to do so, but David understood that the Messiah who would come from his seed would also be his sovereign Lord. And that's what I tried to put up here on the board for you. When Christ used that powerful verse from the Old Testament scripture against the religious rulers, we are told by Matthew, and this I always got a kick out of this, you know, after they bang, 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 tried to trip him up and discredit him with all their questions, and then he gave them this question, it says, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. (laughs) That's in Matthew 22, 46. As I said, Peter had been there, the others had been there, and now Peter uses that same powerful proof of the deity of the Messiah, who he had just said was who? Jesus of Nazareth. Peter thrusts that sharp point of the Spirit's powerful sword into the hearts of those who are really listening with willful ears. And he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord 
And that word is Adonai and Christ. What's he saying? The Messiah you've waited for for, for 4,000 years, the Messiah that you thought would just be a great prophet, is also Lord. He's Adonai. Peter's warning was addressed to who? All the house of Israel. All Jewish people, no matter where they were living. They were all of the house of Israel. Remember Jacob? His name was changed to Israel the night he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. <laughs> Virginia and I were in Walmart. That was interesting. I met her in Walmart, the Carthage, you know, mini Walmart, the other day. And we were talking. And this man, um, in, in one of those motorized um, carts, just kind of interrupted our conversation, didn't he? And I, I don't remember how he started, but um, he said something about... Um, yeah, God has blessed us, and we agreed. We thought, oh, great, you know, he's having a nice little conversation. And um, then he said something about, you know, remember Jacob? When Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night, and the angels were ascending and descending? And I thought, oh, my goodness, you got your stories a little bit mixed up. Those were like 40 years apart. Uh, <laughs> he had the dream in Bethel of the ladder with angels ascending and descending, and then way later when he was, you know, on his way back, home he wrestled all night with the angel of the lord the pre-incarnate christ but he had his stories a little messed up and then he started talking about the angels and that got kind of weird but then he said something about you know well i think virginia you might have said something about the important thing is to know where and we're, where we're going when we die and he said yeah he said you know our our good works have to outweigh our bad works and i said oh no <laughs> You got, I mean, you got that wrong. <laughs> I said, it's all about Jesus Christ. He's the key to heaven. It's, and he says, well, it's nice talking to you ladies and off him. <laughs> that was the end of him. It is sad. It's so many people think there's this giant, my dad believed that, you know, if your good works outweigh your bad works. But anyway, uh, how did I get on that? Oh, Jacob, yeah, they were all descendants of Jacob's family, you know. Jacob's name was changed to Israel the night that he wrestled with the Lord, and from him came the 12 tribes of Israel. So it didn't matter where they were living. If they were living in Timbuktu, if they were Jewish, they were of the house of Israel. <clears throat> so in essence, this was Peter's sermon warning. That same Jesus who you, Israel, rejected, God has resurrected. This same Jesus who you, Israel, mockingly crucified, God has majestically crowned. This one you murdered, God has magnified. You executed him, but God has exalted him. He is on his throne today, and he is just waiting for the day when God will make his enemies his footstool. So be warned this is what Peter's saying. Be warned. Do not be on the side of his enemies. Now, the difference in the response to Peter from this crowd compared to the response of the religious rulers to Jesus when he used that same Psalm 110 verse 1 is amazing. When Jesus used it, no, those religious rulers didn't have ears to hear. They were just angry. They were seething. They didn't say a word, and they never wanted to ask him any more questions because they were embarrassed and they were mad, but they didn't really hear what he was saying. But these devout men that Peter is giving this sermon to, 
they had ears that were willing to hear. Instead of trying to now trick Peter with some self-important questions or durst not asking him anything further, they do ask a question, don't they? And it's a very, very important question. What question do they ask in verse 37? What shall we do? So, what was the result of the very first sermon of church history given in the heart of the city that committed the worst atrocity of all, killing the Son of God? It just doesn't get any worse than that. It was the greatest catch of fish that Peter had ever seen in his life. Jesus, of course, actually, by the, the, the convicting, convincing ministry of his spirit, was the one who brought in that great catch of fish. Just like in those other miracles in the Gospels, it was Jesus who caught the fish. But this time, Jesus didn't use a net. He used Peter. When he uses you and I, he's including us in the blessing, isn't he? He used Peter. Peter had rightly divided the word of truth. And it was a great catch. So let's look at the repentance of souls, verses 37 to 41. It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word, I love that, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Wow. When the devout Jews who were dwelling at Jerusalem out of every nation of the diaspora heard Peter's succinct, logical, spirit-filled, scriptural, undisputable answer to their first question, what meaneth this, they were, actually the Greek word, I don't want to, it's too long to even try to say it, but the Greek word for pricked, the Greek word literally means way more than pricked. Pricked is just kind of like you think of a pin, pin prick. The Greek word really means stabbed. They were pierced through. With what? The truth, exactly. They were pierced through with the truth of all that Peter had spoken forth about Jesus of Nazareth. That stabbed them with the stunning and sudden awareness of what their people had done. The house of Israel. There could be no greater guilt for a race of people to realize that they had been responsible for killing the very one they had waited 4,000 years for God to send. That would really pierce your heart, wouldn't it? Waited and waited and waited ever since he promised Adam and Eve in the garden for the coming seed of the woman, and he finally arrives, and what did they do? They killed him. 
promised anointed one, the Christ, the one who would deliver them from the oppression that they felt every single day as they lived in a world under the domain of the evil one. Don't you feel that oppression every day? With this, you know, uh, airplane going, I mean, just, oh, it's, so, it's just getting so scary in this world. And you just feel the oppression where men are calling right, wrong, you know, evil, good, and good, evil. They felt that oppression. And this is the one, you know, they waited for who would deliver them from all that. And yet they rejected and crucified him. He could have set up the kingdom of God on earth and reign from the very throne of David forever. And they did away with him. Furthermore, these people would realize that what had happened could not be undone. They couldn't go back in time and embrace him as Lord and uncrucify him, could they? Their Messiah had come and gone, and they had not only missed him, but they had nationally rejected him. And this stabbing of the hearts was the greatest miracle of Pentecost. You know that. This is the greatest miracle of all. For this is the Holy Spirit's first work in the human heart, and it is called conviction. This was what Peter's spirit-filled, spirit-directed sermon had been aimed to do from the very beginning. This was its single purpose, and it should be for all sermons. If you sit it through a sermon and you're not convicted of something, it's probably a very weak sermon. Not doesn't use much scripture. It, this, perp, this purpose of this sermon was to produce conviction of sin that would lead to what? Repentance. Notice that the people, by and large, accepted Peter's message. We don't hear about the mockers, do we? I don't know. They were outnumbered. Maybe they just dissipated, just left the scene. But we don't hear about anybody shunning him or stoning him to death, as they did with Stephen, or arguing with him. Here's an interesting thought. Um, and I, Did you do this on your homework this week, or is that one of the questions for next week? I don't know. I get everything confused in my mind because I'm like a week ahead. But <laughs> Peter, throughout the sermon, talked about the Holy Spirit, right? Of course, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you can go through and you can tally. Did you do that? Did you tally? Or is that next week? Okay, next week. All right. Um, all, the, all the references to God, God the Father. And then, of course, you can reference the, the references to the Messiah being deity. So in the sermon, Peter talks about God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son, that the Messiah was also God. And he names him as Jesus. And not one single devout Jew in this large Pentecost crowd says anything to contradict this idea of a triune God. Isn't that amazing? He's talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and nobody says, what are you talking about? You know, they were big about their monotheistic faith. So why don't they argue with, uh, you know, the Jews today bring that up all the time, don't they? Well, I'm going to answer that homework question right now, so listen up. Do you know what God's called in the very first chapter of the Bible? Repeatedly, in almost every single verse of Genesis chapter 1, he's called Elohim. Elohim is plural. I am. Anytime you see I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it's plural. Like when we add an S or ES. Also, their word for one, when they talk about two shall become one, or when they talk about one bunch of grapes, that word is echad, 
which means unity of oneness. Like you have a husband and a wife, there's two people, but they're one, seen as one. So they had an understanding that God was, and also Elohim, it's a plural word for God, but it's always used in the singular and with a singular verb. So they don't contradict this idea of a one God in three persons. That's interesting to think about. Also notice this, in their overwhelming agony of despair for what they had done, what their people had done, they turned to the right people for the answer to their dilemma. They don't turn to one another and say, what should we do? What should we do? They don't turn to each other, do they? They don't turn to the religious rulers for an answer. They turn to the right people and they ask the right question. They turn to Peter and to the rest of the apostles and they ask, what shall we do? Well, as Peter had answered the first question of the Pentecost crowd, what meaneth this? He now answers their second question. And he answers it by saying, this kind of reminds us of John the Baptist, doesn't it? Repent. Except this time he doesn't say for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent and uh, be baptized for the remission of sins. This time he gives the name of the king, Jesus of Nazareth. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Do you remember the great commission that was given in Luke's gospel? The great commission from Luke is this, and that repentance, Jesus said this, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Well, Peter remembered that, and that's exactly what he and the others are doing. Uh, They had listened well. This is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel, so that there would be repentance and remission of sins. What is remission? forgiveness the whole purpose for the gospel so there'll be repentance and people they'll be convicted and they'll repent of their sins and their sins will be forgiven the apostle paul on mars hill he said that god now commanded all men everywhere to repent repentance involves changing your mind about who's on the throne of your life self or the savior change your mind about that it's really the flip side of faith They go hand in hand, repentance and faith. There's really no uh, true repentance without faith, and there's no true faith without genuine repentance. I don't like this easy gospel message where they just say, believe on the Lord Jesus, and, you know, that's it. Easy believism. There needs to be some repentance of your sin, some turning from your sin to the Savior. It's always should be repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Well, Peter also called on these people to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Their repentance was to be expressed just as openly and just as publicly as the national sin of crucifying him had been. You know, really, the cross was Jesus' public baptism. Remember he even called it that? He said, oh, you know, I, I really long to cast Holy Spirit fire on earth, but first I have a baptism to endure. Because when he was on the cross, he went down, didn't he? Into the deep waters of agony and death and all that he suffered, you know, an eternity of hell. That was his public baptism to cleanse away our sins. For these people, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ was making a clear testimony because they were testifying that they renounced themselves from the guilt of the Hebrew nation 
by their personal acceptance of Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and Christ, verse 36. Now, that would be a tremendous step for these Jewish people who to this point in time had looked to their animal sacrifices in the temple as the source for their forgiveness of sins, right? Even though they knew that they had to keep doing it because the animal sacrifices only temporarily covered their sins. You know, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs never permanently cleansed them. That's why they always had to continually offer the sacrifices. But to this point in time, that's what would cleanse their sins. Peter, however, had just pronounced to them the end of all of that. He didn't say, repent and offer your sacrifices as the remission of sins. Did he say that? Mm -mm. He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's a new day. By their public baptism, they would be proclaiming their personal acceptance of Christ as their once-for-all Lamb of God sacrifice, and they would be disavowing themselves from the guilt of the house of Israel. Repent, you know, make an about-face, separate yourself by your outward display of baptism in the name of Jesus. Separate yourself from the nation that rejected him and faces impending doom. Change your mind, change your attitude, change your heart about Jesus. Don't reject him with the rest of Israel. Instead, receive him. Now, in the notes, I talk about, is baptism a mandatory part of salvation? I think everybody here knows it is not. It's a public identification with the baptism of Christ, but that's that. I'm going to save that for later because we're out of time, but I think most of you understand that. You don't add a work to grace. Well, Peter went on to tell those with the stabbed hearts that repentance and faith in Christ would not only bring them forgiveness, but they would also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that word gift. When we receive the Holy Spirit, isn't that a wonderful gift? God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. Now, that Greek word for gift is, Dora Ann, this is where I was going to tell you your name, Dora Ann. The Greek word for gift is Doria. That's very close to your name. Maybe your name means gift, and you are a gift to us. <laughs> it speaks of that which is absolutely free and undeserved. Do any of us deserve God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us? No, we surely don't. It's a gift of God. It is the Doria of the Spirit that makes it possible for Christ's life to be lived in the believer day by day. We could never live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. This gift, as we also have discussed previously, was not merely an offer to those who were standing in front of Peter on the day of Pentecost, but it would likewise be available for their children and all of their future descendants. Isn't that marvelous grace for the people who had cried out, remember these words? His blood be on us and on our children. What a horrible thing to say. I would never include my children in something like that. Aren't you thankful, Connie? 
<laughs> the gift of the Holy Spirit was also, not only was it for them and their children, but for all that are afar off. Aren't you glad for those words? Who do that, those words speak of? Us, Gentiles. Peter, now we know he's obviously being led by the Spirit here in saying this, because it actually <laughs> surprised Peter later on when Gentiles did receive the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it took a dream to, get, to wake him up, didn't it? So we know here he's really speaking the words of the Spirit when he says all that are afar off. He, here he's, um, uh, in his very first sermon of the church age, the, the very first sermon of the church age is including Gentiles. That's amazing. Then at the end, well, it shouldn't be amazing because it actually was supposed to be the purpose of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Well, then at the end of verse 39, Peter says these words. He says, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, remember we spoke last week about mm, that hard thing to wrap your mind around, the divine sovereignty side of salvation, hand-in-hand hand with the human responsibility side, you know, that we have free will, free choice. Well, here we have this again because here he, this is the divine sovereignty side. For as, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's kind of like election, right? And yet, look back at verse uh, 21, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's that in the same sermon? That's the human responsibility side of the issue. Now, in Acts 2.40, we are told by Luke that Peter, with many other words, did testify and exhort. We don't know all that Peter said because Luke wasn't inspired to write the rest of what Peter said. But it's obvious that Peter spoke a lot more uh, in his message than what is recorded for us because it says many other words. And the verb tense of his exhortation is in the present continuous tense. So it literally reads, he kept on exhorting. And it's safe to say that the primary subject of his exhortation is what we read in his invitation. Every good sermon has an invitation. Not only did he invite them to repent, but he invites them to save themselves from this untoward generation. That's the last recorded words of this first sermon. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, the Greek word that is translated in the King James Version as untoward, we don't use that word, do we? But here's, this is interesting. I just jumped up and down when I looked up the Greek word. It is scolius, which is where we get our English word for scoliosis. Mm, curvature of the spine. Scolius means bent out of shape, crooked, corrupt. Save yourselves from this corrupt, crooked generation. That's a fascinating word for Peter to use, and it's so appropriate. Israel was far from being in the straight shape that God had intended for her. In fact, she was so bent over with scoliosis, <laughs> you know, with her crookedness and her corruption, that she had not just, that she 
had just rejected her long-awaited Messiah and cried out, you know, his blood be on us and our children. Crucify him, crucify him. The people of Israel accepted responsibility for Jesus' death and the tragic echo of their own words came back to them within one generation. In fact, in just 30 years, on the very spot where the Jews had cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and where they had cried out, we have no king but Caesar, and where they had cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. 30 years from that, the time of his crucifixion, on that very spot, 3,600 of Jerusalem's citizens were killed by the, the then reigning Roman governor. And many of them were mercilessly scourged and crucified themselves. And then in 70 AD, just a few years later, Jerusalem fell. We know that her temple was utterly destroyed, wasn't it? Not one stone left upon another. And some 100,000 citizens died in the city from starvation as the Romans besieged um, the city. And, and then we know that the remaining Jews were scattered everywhere, weren't they? Until what year? What year did they? Not, until 1948. Wow. The most marvelous miracle of Pentecost was not the mighty rushing sound of wind without the feel of wind. It wasn't the cloven tongues as of fire without the warmth of fire. It was not the 120 spirit-filled believers speaking forth in Gentile tongues and dialects, um, the wonderful works of God without ever having gone to language school. Those are, I think, pretty amazing things, right? But not the greatest miracle. It was not even the sudden boldness of people who had previously been very fearful and had shut themselves up behind locked doors. It was not the fact that Peter had so adequately yielded a, sword, yielded a sword that he had never used before. It was not even that his entire sermon went uninterrupted. What was the most marvelous miracle of Pentecost? Well, it's found in the fruit that was produced by all of these things working together. Instantly, three Thousand, about 3,000 souls stepped out of Judaism and into the church. And now I'm going to say something that you might never have thought about before. So what I want to do is start by reading exactly, this is, I only have a couple minutes, but we'll be done. I want to look exactly at what Peter said in verse 40. And what Luke was inspired to tell us in verse 41. All right, first... Look at Peter's words. Save yourselves from this scolious generation, from this untoward generation. Now, if this had been a, an invitation that was given by one of our modern-day preachers, we might question the words, save yourselves, wouldn't we? If your preacher said, save yourself, you'd say, hmm, there's no way that anybody can save themselves. We're absolutely helpless to do so because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But Peter, speaking to devout Jews on Pentecost, says, save yourselves. 
But notice the rest of his sentence. He does not beseech them to save themselves from the wages of sin, which is death. He does not beseech them to save themselves from eternal damnation. Rather, he beseeches them to save themselves from their perverse, crooked generation, which had rejected Jesus, their Messiah. You see, God's wrath was hanging over that generation of the house of Israel. Those who gladly received Peter's word did cut themselves off from that Christ-rejecting generation of Israel. How did they cut themselves off? By repenting of their sin, by identifying themselves with Jesus. How did they do that? They were baptized in his name. Now look at Luke's exact words of verse 41. It says, and the same day there were added unto them. Who's, who was added? The 3,000 were added unto them. Who's the them? The 120. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now here's what I'm going to say that might you never might have thought about before. I believe that as with the 120, God was calling true Israel out of Israel. These were what kind of Jews? They were devout Jews. They were the true believing remnant. They were true Israel. Thus, when they heard God's spirit speak to them through God's true servant, they gladly received the word. And that word centered on the fact that the Messiah they had longed for had indeed come. Remember Jesus said to the religious rulers, you don't know the Father, which is why you don't know me. Well, these people knew the Father, and that's why they did know when they heard the Spirit speak to them who Jesus was. Israel as a nation and under her false religious shepherds had rejected her Messiah but these people could be saved from the judgment to come upon Israel so I believe that as the 120 had gone up into the upper room as Old Testament saints but came down from the upper room as New Testament saints as they went up as individuals but came down as a body called the church, that the same could be said for these 3,000. They came to Jerusalem, devout Jews, to celebrate Pentecost as Old Testament saints. But when they left the city, they left as what kind of saints? New Testament saints, and they were added to the church. Do you follow me? All right, let's pray. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Father, for this precious time in your word. Thank you. Thank you for the hunger of these women. Thank you for raising your son from the dead. Thank you that you reign, that you're still on your throne, and that you are sovereign no matter what is taking place in this earth. You have a plan and you have a purpose. I ask that you would reign in our lives 
I would ask that you would help us to tear down every idol from your throne and worship only you, that you would break down our stubbornness, our self-will, our indifference, and that you would fill us with a desire to know you, to truly know you in the power of your resurrection in our lives. Give us the desire to experience what it would be like if you were really reigning in every single area of our lives, that all of our faculties, our thoughts, our attitudes, our wants, everything would be under the control of Christ. Oh, that'd be a glorious thing. Bring this to pass in each of us who now whispers in our own mind, yes, that's what I want. I want complete yieldness to the Spirit so that he indwells every part of me. I pray this is our desire. Lord, now I ask that you go with every woman, bring us all back safely in two weeks, and use us in the meantime to be salt and light in this, in this needful world. For we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you.